Welcome to It Just So Happened. Hi, I'm Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and a very unprofessional historian. In this show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 6th of February. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. It's the first city outside of London to have traffic wardens, and also the opening of the first Tesco outside of London. Yes, of course, it's Leicester. (laughs) Uh, For your information, that first Tesco was on Lee Street, and was formally opened by none other than Sid James. We are performing the show in the Leicester Comedy Festival. This innovative festival hosts events such as the UK Pun Championships, the Silver Stand-Up Competition and the very first UK Kids Comedy Festival. Our venue tonight is Weekston's House. Situated on Leicester's Old High Street, it is the city's oldest standing house although from the outside it makes you wonder how it is still standing. Uh, The building now serves as a bar and restaurant, having been refurbished five years ago. The ground floor hall and the upstairs rooms, including the space we are in now, forms the oldest part of the building, dating back to 1490, which is quite impressive, Lester. And talking of old things who you can scarcely believe are still standing, (laughs) sitting down here, uh, let me introduce tonight's panel. So please welcome Ben Ellis. Chairman Govin and Kevin Hudson. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. Our first guest tonight is Ben Ennis. Now Ben could be described as Mr Lester himself, given that he has held three significant posts in the city. One as the town crier, two as Santa for the city's big switch on, and three as Leicester City's mascot, Philbert Fox, no less. Not that Leicester are doing any good tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not going to mention the football after that. He's also lived in Leicestershire's most haunted house, the Knoll, as a university warden for eight years, and on his own for half the year. So over to you, Ben, you brave soul. Thank you. Um, A lovely introduction from Richard there, especially considering the last time I was introduced to an audience... I was described as a slightly to be Mozart. <laughs> a joke which worked better when, uh, before I lost weight, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm healthy. And yeah, I was filled with the Fox uh, between 2001 and 2004. And this is genuinely true in the contract. There were three rules. Firstly, filled with the Fox is a mute, so he's not allowed to speak. When you're in the costume, you've got to be completely quiet. Uh, the second rule, was that Phil the Fox must not make any obscene gestures with his tail. (laughs) And the third rule was that Phil the Fox has no views whatsoever, either way, on fox hunting. (laughs) Very difficult to express an opinion on fox hunting when you can't talk. Um, And also, genuinely, uh, for two and a half years, I always used to smile for photographs. (laughs) Um, So, on this day... Uh, 6th of February, 1862, uh, Union Naval Commodore Andrew Foote captured Fort Henry in the American Civil War. It was a strategic Confederate position, and he was born in 1806 as Andrew Hull Foote. And with the middle name Hull, maybe he was born to be in the Navy. Um, I'm referring to the part of the uh, ship. 
uh, and not the former city of culture. Just, to point <laughs> out. Um, uh, just as an aside, um, that was one of my shifts as the town crier of Leicester. Uh, I was all dressed up, we were at the Curve Theatre, ready to announce Leicester as the theatre of culture, live on TV, there was a buffet, and it was Hull. Um, <laughs> so we all filled our doggy bags and went home. <laughs> um, so, um, so Andrew Foote was also known as Andy Foote, you can make your own puns up, uh, or Andrew Bigfoot, referring to his large stature, or purely footy. Um, he had a reputation for going out on a limb. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lame joke. <laughs> All right. Um, the capture of Fort Henry was a milestone in the Civil War, and thankfully the Confederates uh, surrendered to the Northern Union forces on the uh, 9th of April, 1865, uh, consolidating the uh, emancipation of slavery. Um, they were assisted by many Native American tribes people. Um, and just as an aside, I once met a Native American, I can't remember his name, uh, but it's often a verb and a noun together, isn't it? Like uh, sitting bull uh, or crazy horse. Um, I asked him for a photograph and he said, no, he said, this is ancient Navajo tradition. He said, if you take my photo, you take my soul. Have you heard this? Yeah. So I respectfully agreed. But then I said, taking a photograph, how ancient exactly is that tradition? <laughs> um, he said to me, he said, we're a proud culture with a rich heritage. Uh, the Globus megafauna colonized America 15,000 years ago. The tribes of the Apache, the Navajo, and the Cherokee spread across the Great Plains. We resisted the indoctrination of St. Ursula in 1727, survived the smallpox epidemics of 1780 and 1837, and in 1876 we defeated General Cooster at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. But look at me, is that the new iPhone 6? <laughs> uh, one and a half million pixels, six gigs of memory. <laughs> Let's have a selfie. <laughs> uh, I now own his soul <laughs> and have downloaded it as a screensaver on my laptop. Um, and I've just remembered his name, Flying Toaster. Um, one person got the reference to the old screensaver that was called Flying Toaster. Technically, very good joke, but did need explaining. Um, unfortunately, Andrew Foot died before Cooster's last stand. Um, so I was thinking of a joke uh, where I could shoehorn Bigfoot into the Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, but I couldn't, but I just did. So, um, so in keeping with the nautical theme, and we're going to have a sort of crime and punishment theme to the show uh, later, uh, on this day in 1873, infamous serial killer Billy Gole was born. Uh, he was alleged to have murdered many dozen sailors passing through uh, Greggs Harbour, Washington. Sentenced to life in 1910, he died in 1927 of syphilis, no surprise owing to his many encounters with naval seamen. Keep it clean. And also, I can't uh, not mention this, on this day, 2016, against the odds, Leicester City went to Manchester City and won 3-1 away from home. Um, this game was a real marker that uh, Leicester were going to, were credible title candidates and it was a watershed moment 
they're top of the league and would soon produce one of, if not the, greatest achievements in sporting history by winning the Premier League. Do you remember that? Um, this is a history show. Yeah, this, it does seem a long time ago show. now. <laughs> so uh, we rewound to the 21st of March, nearly a year before that, 2015, the previous season. Leicester had lost to Spurs. They were beaten in 18 league games. Uh, they were bottom of the league. They were dead and buried. Which brings me on to Richard III, <laughs> uh, who was discovered in the Greyfriars car park in 2012, just across the road. He was reinterred with dignity in Leicester Cathedral on the 26th of March 2015. Um, Leicester surprisingly won uh, against West Ham away, and then they won the next game, and the next, and the next, and they ended up winning seven games out of nine, and against all the odds secured Premier League survival in one of the greatest footballing comebacks and shocks uh, in football history. So am I suggesting the reinterment of Richard III was in some way the turning point <laughs> on some kind of supernatural karmic level? I'll let you decide. <laughs> or was it Esteban Cambiasso playing speaker? Was it something supernatural? After all, the stadium is called King Power. Okay. And um, when Richard III was discovered, his grave was covered by a marquee. Um, and I was thinking to celebrate the discovery and the Premier League win, they could attach a glitter ball to the inside of the marquee and they could call the event, Now is the Winter of Our Disco Tent. <laughs> it's the only proper joke I've written for this show. <laughs> I will formally introduce our two esteemed panel members on my right, uh, but um, I'll do a little segue section just now. So I uh, couldn't let the show pass on this day without mentioning that on the 6th of February 1952, King George VI died, and so his daughter Elizabeth became Queen of the United Kingdom and her other realms and territories and head of the Commonwealth. So I've got a series of questions for you, a bit like a pub quiz, really, about the Queen. So first of all, where was she at the exact moment of succession? On the throne. <laughs> in a tree house. Was she in Africa? Yeah. In I watched the crown. Oh, okay. yeah, she was in a tree house. <laughs> You'll be good at this one. Yeah. She was in a tree house, yes. In, in the ground. In a hotel in Kenya, when she uh, became Queen, or Queen Regnant. Uh, where was she born? <laughs> Windsor? No. no. Uh, LRI? <laughs> in a hospital? No. <laughs> yeah, she was born at home, and that was uh, the address was 17 Bruton Street in Mayfair, and she was born by a cesarean section. So you might have thought she was born in Paris, but she wasn't. Uh, what What are her middle names? The Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth the second. Yeah. I don't know. Elizabeth uh, Alexandra. Right, so between you, yes. Harry? Alexandra and Mary. She was named Elizabeth after her mother, Alexandra after her paternal great-grandmother, who had died six months earlier, and after Mary, who was her paternal grandmother. So in November 1947, she married Philip and... Oh, that's your partner there, making that. <laughs> November 1947, she married Philip Mountbatten. Which two countries was he a former prince of? Greece, Germany. Greece is one, yes. Yeah. Greece was the easy one, wasn't it? It was. Not wishing to. 
But it was. That was the one I knew. <laughs> Anyone in the audience know? Who's Prince of Greece and Denmark? When her father died, she became Queen Regnant of seven independent Commonwealth countries. Can you name, well, any of them? We'll see how we do. Australia. Yes. India. No. Canada. Who else did she visit? Yep. So we've got Australia and Canada. Rhodesia. Ireland. Sorry, what's that? Rhodesia. Rhodesia. No, sorry. New Zealand. Yes. Kenya. I'll put you out of your misery. One is the UK, of course. <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon. How did she get to socialise with girls of her own age? On the bus. Yes, brilliant. Uh, they formed a, a girl guides company, especially for her, called the First Buckingham Palace Company, <laughs> so that she could socialise with girls of her own age. So she married the Duke of Edinburgh in November 47, and Prince Charles was born in November 48. Over the next three years, while Charles and Anne remained in the UK, where did Elizabeth and Philip live abroad for a few months at a time? Malta. Malta. You've given it away over there. <laughs> oh, well thank you. Yes, because Philip was on active service with the Royal Navy there. Now, at the time of Sir Anthony Eden's resignation as Prime Minister after the Suez Crisis, the Conservative Party at that time had no formal mechanism for choosing a leader, which is quite a topical thing at the moment. <laughs> so it fell to the Queen to actually choose Eden's successor. Whom did she choose? I've just seen this on the ground. I can't remember. Did you fall asleep while you were watching it? <laughs> <laughs> no, just got to that bit. Yeah. I can't remember. Harold Wilson? Uh, it was a Harold, but not that one. Macmillan. Oh, Harold Macmillan. Yeah. And then when Macmillan resigned six years later in 1963, she had to choose again. And who did she choose that time? Harold Wilson. Yeah, Douglas Hume. The Earl of Home. Yes, you're very good on the on, on. I thought that was quite an interesting fact when I was researching this, that, that the Conservative Party had no way of choosing the leaders, so they had to refer to the Queen. Obviously, they do have a mechanism now. Last time it's they chose Boris. Shame, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Queen has missed performing the state opening of the British Parliament only twice during her reign, in 1959 and 1963. Why was this? Because she was having a baby. That's right. Yeah, she was pregnant with Andrew and then with Edward. Yeah. 1992, she described as her Annas Horribilis, or horrible year. What happened to make her describe 1992 in that way? Did Leicester get relegated? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> was it an up or a down season? Yeah. <laughs> Charles and Diana divorced? That was one of them, yeah. There were actually three, well, they, they separated, actually. Andrew so, had been down the nursery. <laughs> <laughs> and so Anne divorced Mark Phillips. Andrew and Sarah separated, and Charles and Diana separated. All wow. That wow. Same year. Any other things you can remember from? Windsor Castle. Windsor Castle. There was a big fire. That's true. I was 21. <laughs> Where were you at the time? <laughs> I was 21. Thanks, Lee. I don't know, I can't remember. Going down the pubs in town. So a few other things that happened. Mauritius removed the Queen as head of state during a state visit to Germany. She actually had eggs thrown at her, which is kind of hard to imagine. There was bad press publicity because of the estimates of, the, of her private wealth. And Prime Minister John Major announced reforms to the royal finances, and she had to start paying income tax, uh, which you're kind of used to her doing now. 
But also the Sun newspaper, I don't know if you remember this, leaked two days in advance what the Christmas message was going to be by the Queen. So she sued the Sun newspaper for breach of copyright and uh, the Sun was forced to pay her legal fees and donate £200,000 to charity. Yeah. Yeah, take that, the Sun. And final question for, for you guys before I introduce Jo. She was the first head of state to open two Olympic Games in two different countries. Which countries were they? Or where were the Games? UK. London in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Where else would you go? Was one of the Winter Olympics? Doesn't know. Moscow. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> it was Montreal in 76, yeah. So you win the pub quiz over there. <laughs> so uh, let's move on then to, to our second guest tonight. So that's Joe Mungovin. Joe's the only person I know who can claim to be fifth cousin to Bill Clinton, fourth cousin to Lord Byron, and to have walked the Queen into Leicester Cathedral, <laughs> as well as being the first person in over 500 years to wish Richard III a happy Christmas. Mm -hmm. It's not all formalities with the royals, though, as she once was on her way to work before realising she still had her pyjama bottoms on. <laughs> Over to Jo. Thanks. On this day, which is, I really like doing on these days, I usually do them on Leicester, but um, this isn't. This is, right, today is actually Lame Duck Day. So I know that you're probably all now imagining Groovy Paul. You know, lots of little lame ducks running around Groovy Paul. But I have to say that it does not actually celebrate the animal. Although I was feeding the ducks at Wistow the other day, and I did see a little lame duck, and I did ask what was up with her. But as of this day, I haven't got a clue. So I really, really don't know. But I do have information on lame duck day. So let's have a look. So the term lame duck is British in origin. It is used as early as the late 18th century to describe bankrupt businessmen. The phrase came into use in the United States to describe defeated politicians as early as the 1830s, replacing a somewhat harsher term of a dead duck. So here I am to tell you a story. So it's a long, long time ago and once upon a time on this day, on February the 6th in 1933, the 20th Amendment to the US Constitution went into effect. This amendment addressed presidential succession, and this is the origin of it just so happened on this day a lame duck was born. Now, a lame duck by human definition is a person in position of some kind and will soon be shown the door. The best example of an incumbent politician who lost in the November elections and they usually remain in office till about the beginning of January. It also applies to leaders and managers who are retiring and whose term of office is up. During the interim period, a lame duck is usually far less effective and frequently ineffective. After all, loyalties will soon shift and it is impossible to rally the troops to one or more cause. Lame Duck Day on February the 6th honours anyone on their way out of their jobs or elected office. So a political lame duck is in the enviable position of not facing a future election. So you may see them pardon friends, make cushy appointments, veto bills, make executive orders, take long weekends, maybe host a garden party without <laughs> knowing you are hosting a garden party, <laughs> or even take a drive to Barnard's Castle to test your eyesight. But it is not all favours or fancies. Homeland security is the result of a lame duck congress meeting, 
wars have been started and a president has been impeached under the auspicious feeble foul. So we've got US President Clinton, who was impeached in 1998 for lying to investigators about his relationship with Ms Lewinsky. Mr Clinton's initial response to the media reports in 1998, I have not had sexual relations with this woman. And he also said, what I did was bad, but it wasn't like I thought, let's think about the most stupid thing I could do and possibly do that. And, and I'm probably sure his cleaning company agreed with him. Well, Mr Clinton was also widely criticised for issuing 140 pardons and other acts of executive clemency on his last day of office, including two former close colleagues, donors, fellow Democrats, members of his own party and his own half-brother. And actually, because I'm his fifth cousin, I was hoping he might pardon me with my early teenage misdemeanours, but obviously he didn't. I sort of pushed that under the carpet. Well, the Russian-UK embassy trolled President Obama on Twitter in December 2016, calling him a lame duck. Obama embraced his lame duckiness with a very funny video about navigating life after presidency. This includes challenges like trying to get a driver's licence and celebrating its 347th round of golf of that year. And President Trump, well... He was absolutely obsessed with pardons. Trump repeatedly asked if he can preemptively pardon himself. He also inquired about pardons for his family members. So, let's see how to celebrate Lame Duck Day. We can support any lame ducks you have around you. If you know one personally, throw them a going away party. If you are a lame duck, enjoy these final days. Reflect upon your successes, positions provided for you. You can kick back a little and have some fun in the remaining days. Now, if you know a lame duck, provide recognition and support. Non-supporters can cut the lame duck a little slack today because they will soon be gone. But if you are a duck, please seek medical attention, which I hope will be given to that poor little duck at Wisto I referred to earlier on in this chat. Thank you. That's Lame Duck Day. Thank you, Jo. So our third guest is Kevin Hudson. Uh, regular listeners of this show will already know that Kevin was a guest panellist in the first ever It Just So Happened show at this festival in 2019. Describes himself as a poet, comedian and accountant. That's the Leicester Mercury said that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> not describing yourself there. You said that wrong. Sorry about the quote. He's been working at the stand-up comedy and poetry for almost six years now. Uh, Kevin grew up in Birmingham and went to school with Duran Duran. Yeah. Mm. He also oh. went on a stag do with Jeremy Carl. Joe's just gone weak in the yes. legs. <laughs> but his proudest moment, uh, proudest achievement, so he told me, was once getting out of bed, showering, and getting on a train all in 20 minutes. That's pretty good. Whereas I managed to get to my hotel and back in 15. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> over to you. Right, afternoon. Uh, if I was to ask you the name of the, uh, the, the first man in space, you know the name of the first man in space? <laughs> Yuri Gagarin. Yeah, everybody knows Yuri. Belittling your knowledge. Do you know the name of the second man in space? Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard was the second man in space, and it was Alan Shepard in the uh, American Mercury Redstone 3 in 1961, so just after Yuri Gagarin. Uh, his craft entered space but was not capable of achieving orbit. Gentlemen, I'm always sure we've all had similar experiences uh, to that from time to time. Um, having gone up into space into in 1961, uh, it was 10 years later, on the 6th of February 1971, that Alan Shepard played golf on the moon. 
crazy. Crazy golf. <laughs> he is one of only 12 people to have walked on the moon. Only 12 people walked on the moon, and no one uh, has walked on the moon twice. Not even Sting. <laughs> Just keeping the police theme going there. <laughs> Uh, Jim Lovell, uh, who you may remember as part of the crew of Apollo 13, played by Tom Hanks in the film Apollo 13, um, he's been to the moon twice, uh, but never landed. He flew in Apollo 8, which I think was the 27th Rocky film, <laughs> and of course Apollo 13. Imagine going all that way twice and not getting off to have a look. It's like going on holiday to Marbella and then just staying on the plane for a week. I'm fine. Just leave me a few sandwiches and a case of San Miguel. Anyway, back to Alan Shepard, one of two Alans to have walked on the moon. Having been the first American in space, Alan Shepard was grounded in 1963 uh, due to contracting something called Meniere's syndrome, uh, which relates to fluid in the inner ear. It causes uh, dizziness and nausea. Uh, in the UK, of course, this onset of dizziness and nausea uh, is known as Weatherspoon's disease. <laughs> He took a chance on experimental surgery to correct his inner ear problem because he was that desperate to get back up into space. And in 1969, he successfully returned to active flight status. Shepard's voyage to the moon was on Apollo 14 uh, with Edgar Mitchell and Stuart Ruser. Uh, and the main purpose of Apollo 14's flight, as you might guess, was to do what Apollo 13 should have done when they went up. And it's just... Pause at that point to think about the bravery of the Apollo 14 crew. Having seen what happened to Apollo 13, you imagine sort of conversation, so this, uh, <clears throat> this thing that went wrong last time, is, is that fixed now? <laughs> the mission was to collect rock samples in the Fra Mauro Highlands region of the moon from around an impact crater uh, known as Cone Crater. It's thought that the, the, the impact of a comet or whatever it was that caused this crater had then thrown um, lots of samples of rock from various layers of the moon over a wide area. Gentlemen, I'm sure we've all ejected samples over a wide area from time to time. Uh, my advice uh, is always to lift the seat up first. <laughs> uh, by collecting these ejected rocks, scientists could actually study the layers of the moon with no need to drill down because the rocks were already up there. So it was essential that the, the astronauts got as close to the crater's edge as they could. Getting to the rim of Cone Crater was considered critical to the scientific success of the mission. Alan Shepard, however, uh, happily admitted that he thought geology was kind of a low-grade science compared to uh, aeronautics. So the scientists weren't too happy with him. Nevertheless, he assured the Apollo scientists he'd do his best for them. Can you imagine you entrusting somebody with this really important job and you know that they're not really interested in doing the really important job. They just want the glamour of the position and they just tell you, I'll do my best. <laughs> Sound a little bit familiar. Uh, Shepard was 47 when he went to the moon and was therefore the oldest man to ever go there. Uh, his colleague on the moon, Ed Mitchell, was a mere 40. Uh, many people at NASA felt that uh, he was out of shape and not up to the rigours of lunar trekking. You might imagine that if you're walking on the moon, it's all sort of, you know, bouncing along and it's all nice and easy and everything else. Um, and it's a piece of cake, but with a re reduced gravity. 
but they had to trudge up steep slopes. They had to, they had to climb a 1,400-metre ascent to get to the edge of, edge of Cone Crater, uh, pulling along a small pull cart with their tools and samples. And they were getting more tired and disorientated the further they got. They hadn't got a particularly good, a good map to know where they were going. Uh, they couldn't really tell exactly where they were, and Shepard was eager to abandon the trek, because he was just bored with geology. Uh, and he radioed to the ground, enough with the hiking trip. I'm not going to do the American accent. I'm not related to Bill Clinton. <laughs> enough with the hiking trip. We're running out of time consumables. Let's sample this area, which is wherever they were. Let's sample this area and call it the rim of the cone crater. Uh, at the time, this annoyed the geologists on Earth, but now photos of the moon have been published where you can clearly see the trail of the, that the astronauts took across there. You can follow the trail across, and you can see that it goes all the way up to the edge of Cone Crater. So they did actually get there, despite his, his attitude of, well, oh, I've had enough now kind of thing. And what did he do? He then, uh, they went, got all the way back to base. Somehow, he, he travelled to the moon with a, a golf club head in his kit. Not a proper, a full golf club, but he took, the, he took the golf club head and attached it to one of the tools that they'd brought up with them and then proceeded to hit two golf balls across the moon. The first one, he said, oh, I scuffed that one. And then the, the second one, they said, well, how did that go? He said, oh, it went for miles and miles. <laughs> and when they actually looked, it had gone about 40 yards. Gentlemen, I'm sure we've exaggerated the, we've all exaggerated the length of things from time to time. <laughs> So there you have it, uh, Alan Bartlett Shepherd Jr., the moon's first golfer on the 6th of February 1971. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I didn't know in advance that you're going to be talking about men ejecting material, rims, samples and stuff. I wouldn't know what you're going to be talking about. Uh, but anyway, we now come to the second half of the show where we uncover some of the history of Leicester. Now, we don't want to cover any of the topics we've covered in previous shows, so I found a kind of loose theme around law and order and crime and punishment, and that's what we're going to cover. So, uh, the first item, I've got my question for the panel. Which Leicester personality was quite possibly the inspiration for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes? Tanky Smith. Tanky Smith. Francis Smith. Francis Smith. Francis Tanky Smith. That's his yes. real name, yes. Right? So you obviously know this about him. Yes, I've got some notes. Bear with me. Oh. <laughs> right. um, what a coincidence. Why do people do that every time, you know, especially with COVID around, <laughs> lick things and hand them to you? Right, anyway. Um, yes, Tanky Smith. Um, and he was known as the master of disguise. And with his colleague, Tommy Haynes, or was it? <laughs> were they ever seen in the same room at the same time? They were. Um, they were the inspiration for yeah Sherlock Holmes and Dr Watson. Um, so uh, instead of uh, Holmes Watson, they would have been known as Tommy Tanky, which is probably, probably not very good uh, if you know Iranian slang. Um, so, and I did find that um, due to some kind of um, legal uh, complication, um, uh, Tanky Smith managed to sue somebody and was able to build a row of houses in Leicester called Top Hat Terrace. There's one or two people nodding. Have you been there? Seen it on the bus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it nice? I've never been. Well, it's painted nice, so you can actually see the top of the people on the wow. top of London Road. You know, you've never seen it. You've never been? 
I've been London Road. You've never seen Top Hat Terror? There we go. Well, something to do, isn't always it? Always need to look yeah. up yeah. Master. You do. So, yeah. um, but I was thinking, considering that it was the, um, they were the inspiration for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it might provide the opportunity to rename Top Hat Terrace Sherlock's Homes. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> you paid seven quid. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I have done some research. The thing um, with, with Top Hat Terraces is a series of, of him just wearing different hats, really. Which just, it's, I mean, it's like the Superman thing with Clark Kent, isn't it? You know, he takes his glasses off, he's Superman, and nobody recognises him. <laughs> or, or Mr. Ben or something. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> a disguise. Put just hat. put a different hat on, yeah. So, so it says more about the quality of people's eyesight, I think, than uh, <laughs> the quality of his disguise. Yeah. Well, they're all painted blue, aren't they? Yeah. All yeah. the top hats are painted blue. So I've got here that there is a bishop, a Quaker, two jockeys, and a top-hatted figure. So that sounds like. Uh, but they've, they've all got top. They've hats. all got blue hats. Mm. Ah, right. Okay. Now, so, you, sorry, you were saying about um, he got the money from suing someone, but I understood that he got the money because he's he solved a case, which was. Um, Winstanley House. Yes. yes. Oh, gone. Gone then. Yeah, sorry. Tell us about it. Oh, is um, that, was it? I just scanned it on Wikipedia. I'm sorry about this. It's not like a proper historian <laughs> or anything. Um, yeah, he, he solved a, a case, um, and it was uh, the Stanley family that owned Broadston Hall in Broadston Park, which is now a very nice uh, restaurant. Um, and, yeah, he was given some an award of some money. Um, so he thought, I'll just build some houses, I guess, as a, as a legacy. The reward is £1,000, which I'm not sure what that equates wow. to nowadays. You can still get houses for that in Broadstone. That's an in-joke, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get the nickname of Tanky? I think it was because... I read this yesterday. Um, I think it was because his name was Francis and it was like a shortened version of Francis. Tanky, tanky. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, okay. Don't do with tankards. So one theory is that tanking was to do with tapping disorderly people on the head with a cane. Oh. But okay. I don't quite know how that relates. But he's the most theory. Victorian person I've ever heard of. Isn't he? he has a cane <laughs> from Victoria. and seven different blue hats <laughs> <laughs> that somehow make him look like a jockey or a. Yes. It's just seven blue hats. Yeah. Anyway. Did you know when the first person walked out of the top hat, when someone saw him, they fainted? Because they didn't know what it was. Yeah, that's a bit of information. For you. There you go. Yeah, they fainted because they'd never seen a top hat and it looked really weird to have this top hat on the head. So people fainted in London. Let's be honest. If anyone went out with the top hat nowadays, that might <laughs> cause a bit of a stir. But... Probably. So any, anything else on him before we move on? Do you have more? Apart from his dreams. Or his dreams. Yeah, oh, dream. When yeah. he was solving a case, he he had a dream that the woman that nicked this money. Um, was quite big build and she was a servant. So when he went to investigate this case, he saw this servant who was quite big build that he had in his dream. So he said to her, this money needs to go back within half an hour and the money returned because he had this dream that it was her. And he used to sleep at night imagining all these cases and how to solve them in his head. I'm beginning to think he didn't exist. <laughs> it seems too far-fetched. Um, I believe he was part of the first police force that was based at the Leicester Guildhall from 1836. So that's something else I know of him. Um, and up until then, um, the people that kept the peace in the city were night watchmen rather than an actual police force as such. 
and the night watchmen were paid on a commission basis and so that was open to lots of corruption so which thankfully we don't have now with the police <laughs> um, and they were inside fighting in order to get arrests and in I think it was 1872 there was a new law brought in where they couldn't serve alcohol after 11 o'clock in the evening so the day before the last day of 24-hour drinking which is now back in everyone went to the pubs to make use of the 24-hour nighttime drinking and one of the little police cells in the Guildhall, I don't know if you've seen them, they're a fraction of the size of this room, just like a little police cell. There were 17 people detained, all drunk and disorderly, in one small cell. How many survived? I don't know, actually. Yeah. <laughs> wow. so, um, and there's, there's two prisoners currently in the Leicester Guildhall. They're not real people, they are mannequins, don't worry. Um, and there's Cranky Jemmy, who was a Leicester pickpocket, and they're based on real criminals, because we're proud of criminals, aren't we, Leicester? <laughs> and there's also Emma Smith, who was um, found guilty of stealing some money off a clergyman, or clergyman's wife. Mm. Um, and she's a very ferocious looking woman. Reminds me a bit of an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're on display in the Guildhall. I should, should explain that Ben works in the Guildhall. <laughs> That's why I know so much that. about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so from Tanky Smith, from Tanky to Tubby, Everards of Leicestershire have a dark ale called Tubby. What is it named after? <coughs> Tubby Stevens, the laughing policeman. Oh, yes, Sorry. I'm giving away half of it. Sorry. Yes, Sorry. Tubby Stevens. Yes. So born in 1861, John William Stevens served in an artillery regiment in the army. He served in the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 and received a campaign medal for his service. He then joined the police. PC Tubby Stevens weighed... 28 stone? 25 stone, mm. yes. Postcards Sorry. at the time proclaimed him as the heaviest policeman in the country. So at the time there was a minimum height for constables but no maximum weight. <laughs> <laughs> um, PC Stevens patrolled the clock tower area of Leicester around the turn of the century and when Leicester Foss played its home matches all the away fans made a point of saying hello to him. Yes, so you mentioned The Laughing Policeman. Mm. Um, it's thought that he was the inspiration for that well-known song, The Laughing Policeman. Do you know about it, or shall I talk about it? Um, no, I mean, I know, all I know is that he's buried at Welford Road Cemetery. He is. It wasn't an unmarked grave, but we've now got a plaque oh, with his right. name on, because we found the grave. Well, unmarked grave, but could they not have <laughs> noticed that there's a... And it's actually, there, it's it? actually buried with his neighbours. There's actually quite a few people in oh, that grave. Oh. Oh gosh, really? Yeah. How deep was it then? <laughs> um, so The Laughing Policeman, the song's officially credited to someone called Mabel Penrose under the pseudonym Billy Gray. However, the music and the melody are taken from The Laughing Song by George W. Johnson, recorded in approximately 1901. Mabel's husband recorded her version 100 years ago in 1922. Charles Penrose used the name Charles Jolly and The Laughing Policeman became an instant musical favourite and then a favourite on the radio in the 1950s and 60s. Um, the Penroses wrote numerous other laughing songs. So we had the Laughing Major, the Laughing Curate, the Laughing Steeplechaser, <laughs> the Laughing Typist, the Laughing Lover, etc., etc. But for some reason, only the Laughing Policeman is remembered today. Maybe that was Tanky Stevens. Uh... Sorry, Tanky Smith. <laughs> Playing all those characters. Oh, it could have been. Could have been, yes. 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 If he was real. Uh, which but is... we didn't establish it, yeah. <laughs> 
The popularity of the song continued into the 1970s as it was a frequently requested song on the BBC Radio 1 show, Junior Choice. An obituary poem published at the time of his death read, Poor old Stevens, how we'll miss him from his customary beat. Nevermore his stalwart figure or stern but kindly face we'll greet. It's like your, your sort of level of poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so one source says it's thought that he has living descendants in the Ibstock area, but in a nice twist, it was known that his great-great-great-grandson, PC Dan Chalice, joined the Leicester Police as an officer in 2020. And he's got his collar number. He's actually got PC Stephen's collar number ah. of his great-great-grandfather. Oh, lovely. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so he already knew that he was his great yeah. He was related. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was traced. Yeah, and he's got, because he have collar number, he's got his great, yeah. great, 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 great grandfather's so collar number. Fingered, I mean, did the policeman at the time wear top hats? Um, old version of the top hat. I yeah. think I think they would have done, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Have I absolutely covered that subject? He could sing it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and I don't think Lester makes enough of that, actually, because um, I couldn't find a lot of information on Tubby Stevens, and if you put him into Google, there's an American football player with the same name he comes up. Um, and yeah, a lot of people know different figures in Leicester, but they don't perhaps know that the Laughing Policeman may have originated. Put your hand up if you knew before about it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So good the show's an education even if it isn't funny. All right. That's all right. Spread the word. Got a question for the panel then. What did people in the city riot over in September 1766? Cheese. Ooh, cheese. 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 Yes. Now, why were they rioting about cheese? Because it was too expensive. Well, it actually started in El Shilton, then it, it rolled, cheese rolled all the way to Leicester. You mean El Stilton? El Stilton, yeah. <laughs> actually, Stilton was made in, first made in Great Dolby. Yeah. She left it too long on the shelf and it got mouldy. Anyway, Moldy and Dolby. Yeah, Moldy and Dolby. Yeah, it was too. It, it was quite expensive, and they they were all in short supply. But there was a guy on Humberston Gate that kept some in his lockup, mm. and then they found out, and they started to break in mm. and literally caused a riot, mm. and um, stole all his cheese. But they managed to impound it in the um, corn exchange. The corn exchange? No, the haymarket. They imp uh... they imprisoned it in the haymarket. Kept yes. it overnight under armed guard, yes, the corn exchange, yeah. and then sold it the next day for two pence per pound. Why riot about cheese specifically? Every, the price of everything's going up at the moment, but I can't see us rioting over the price of cheese or not. You're about yeah. cheese on toast. Yeah, well, this is it. <laughs> yeah, missing it. I think it's just so, so expensive, wasn't it? Yes. Well, they couldn't get hold of it. 1766, there was a bad harvest, and there were concerns about food shortages generally. Prices were rising, but like today. And that, that was what was leading to riots across the whole of the Midlands. I think you had a story, didn't you, about this? Um, I, I, just, I just heard that the mayor of Nottingham um, attempted to restore order, uh, but was knocked over by some rolling cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so not a baby bell. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, any cheese puns while we're at it? It just takes the biscuit, really, doesn't it? Oh, very good, yes. Oh, I know. God. That's not very mature. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did think he was the lead singer of Ultra Rocks. <laughs> Mid mature. Yeah, that was, yeah. very, it was very cheesy. Oh, I had to explain yeah. the second joke to Yeah, absolutely crackers, really, aren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I did have one about the Brie Raphaelites. 
and obviously there was Jesus of Nazareth, but um, <laughs> almost contemporary. But what foodstuff did Leicester find itself short of producing in 2021? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, the, the great crisp shortage. Oh, yeah. yeah. What was that caused by? So yes, wow. it wasn't Brexit and it pandemic or on the shortage of truck drivers, but it was an IT upgrade. Uh, what effect did this shortage have on one particular Narborough family? Do you know the story uh, I'm referring she, to? She was addicted to crisps. Was it, it was more medical. She would only eat them. Uh, it wasn't yeah. prawn cocktail. Was girl, yeah, yeah. 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 a four-year-old girl was had an eating disorder or has an eating disorder, and her parents were left desperate by the shortage of Walker's crisps because she was particularly addicted or, or needed to have oven-baked sea salt flavour crisps, to be precise. Did she have Prada Willy? That's what. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's, um, it's an eating disorder. Oh, right? actually. Oh. Like, you eat or anything you can eat, like um, furniture. Or, Pick. Pick-up. You know. Take them to Devon's, it's like an all, all you can eat buffet. You know. I think it's called um, Picker, where they eat anything. Oh, is it Picker? It is Picker, mm. yeah. Well, it used to be years ago. Yeah. Did you say eating furniture? Yeah. Yeah, they eat anything. <laughs> yeah. It's a table service. Wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> According to Potato News today, uh, the, shortages, the shortages were easing by November of 2021. Anyway, we're supposed to be a history show here. This is more like contemporary events, so I don't propose to be a commentator. <laughs> you can get that sort of thing on the MASH report. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Oh, laughing at me laughing. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Laughing at my own jokes, anything else? So, um, going back to mobs and riots, which MP who later became Prime Minister once stood as a candidate in the Leicester East constituency in the 1918 general election? 18. In what election? Eight. 1918. Oh, he was the one that ran under the underground toilets in Russell Square. Ramsay. Ja uh, James Ramsay McDonald, yeah. yes, who became the first Labour PM. My next question was, oh, um, sorry. what did he do to escape a mob in Russell Square? <laughs> Have a guess. He, um, no, that's fine. He hid in the underground toilets. In Russell Square, which um, aren't there anymore. Obviously, this would never happen. Nowadays, our Prime Minister would hide in a walk-in fridge. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, Ramsay MacDonald had an anti-war stance and was hugely unpopular as a result and lost the election by 15,000 votes. So, something a bit further back, who was the last man to be publicly hanged in Leicester? Let's lead on to a story. James. No, it was William Brown. Oh, look, it says William Brown on my coat. Oh, look, it says William Brown on my coat. Oh, that's a coincidence. William Brown, otherwise known as Peppermint Billy. Last man publicly hung in Leicester. I know that because I've just written a book on him. And it should be out in March. Can you tell us, give us a taste? William Brown. Give us a taste, yes. William Brown was born in Scalford in 1819, and he was transported to Van Diemen's Land in 1843 for his third theft offence. Um, he then spent a 10-year transportation sentence and he ended up spending about 13 years, um, 10 years in Van Diemen's land, seven years in an asylum while he was there because he was diagnosed as being manic. He then went over to Victoria when he was finally released and he became one of 5% emancipated convicts that actually came back to England because they couldn't afford to come back because it was too expensive. But he actually came back. We don't know why. He then came back and two weeks after he came back, he supposedly committed a double murder in Moulton, commit killing a grandfather of 71 and his nine-year-old grandson, literally slaughtering them. And then when he was captured in Weatherby, 
in Yorkshire. He was returned to Leicester and became the last public hanging in the city. Town, because it was a town then. 3rd of July, 1856. Friday, at 8.30. Way to end the weekend. Exactly. So yeah, that's William, and he didn't do it. And, and the book's out in March. Hopefully, yeah. yeah so the publishers we can look out for that one. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if your appetite has been whetted. <laughs> it did make a mint, yeah. Um, so there was a local <laughs> company called Thomas Cook. could help you visit executions outside of the area. They arranged train excursions so you could visit them. Uh, this was something known as dark tourism in the mid-1800s. And his travel agency works in cooperation with rail companies to help promote the popularity of travel by train. And this was part of the success at the time. So they organised special train excursions which transported passengers to witness public hangings around England. These events had a carnival-like atmosphere like most open-air festivals of the time where you could buy fried fish, hot pies, fruit and ginger beer. You could also buy mournful odes and lamentations which were fake condemned cell confessions. And Thomas Cook apparently also promoted tours of the Second Boer War in Swaziland, South Africa before the conflict had even ended. <laughs> this is kind of they obviously he's obviously making a killing. <laughs> Didn't have that time no. uh, <laughs> In twenty nineteen the company was bailed out with two hundred million pounds of public money, thus ironically receiving their own stay of execution. That was meant to be funny. Yep. And it wasn't. <laughs> yes, now I know how you feel, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> what's the difference between a gallows and a gibbet or a gibbet? Well, the gallows is where you hang someone, mm. and the gibbet, which is in the guild hall, um, is a metal frame that was tailor-made, and that's where the body would be hung as a deterrent, um, which obviously didn't work because they were still doing it. Um, and it, the body would hang in the gibbet, sometimes till it was mostly decomposed, and it would be tailor-made. So. Um, there was uh, the last person to be gibbeted in Leicester, I think it was 1836. 1832. 1832, yeah. No, 30,000 people came to watch, which is what the football stadium would hold now. So it was, you know, there was no football back then. So that was three o'clock on a Saturday. Partly <laughs> thanks, thanks to Thomas Cook, though, with the train excursions. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that, yeah. yeah. So, um, but there were a lot of protests saying that this was barbaric and I believe it was the last gibbeting in the country certainly in Leicester and it was just near the football stadium actually on the bridge um, where Elston Road, uh, Saffron Lane is and um, yeah tailor made as well I mean it's awkward enough having your inside leg taken anyway isn't it <laughs> um, and you know it's going to go in a gibbet um, and um, the replica, the, the original went to New Bolford and it's now in the Galleries of Justice in Nottingham. Uh, but a replica of the original gibbet is hanging in the Guildhall. Um, so you'd be welcome to go and see that. And you can see Emma Smith, Cranky Jemmy. And we've also got some stocks, although I'm told that they're actually pillions. Um, but they're not original, they're just for fun. So um, <laughs> we just bring them out on event days. <laughs> and if you don't like someone, you can throw tomatoes at them. And if you really don't like them, you can throw tin tomatoes. Because <laughs> um, they're more effective. Um, yeah. 
so one, one further fact about it, uh, he, yes, he was the final gibbeting or gibbeting mm. in England, but he was only up in the cage for a few days because there were unexpectedly large crowds forming and there were complaints from local neighbours. Uh, so the Home Office ordered the removal of the gibbet, granting the remission of that part of Cook's sentence, yeah. because that was part of the sentence too be hanged and then put yeah. in the gibbet, yeah. yeah. Could I mention this crime? Um, uh, it has to be quick though, I'm afraid, because okay, we're running out of time. Quick. Yeah, yeah, he um, had a debt uh, with somebody called James Pass, um, and he came to James Cook's house to collect the money, um, and he hit him over the head with some kind of cosh or tool or something, uh, and thought it'd be a good idea to try and hide what he'd done by dismembering the body, and burning him in the fireplace, and it went wrong, um, the house filled with smoke and it came out onto the street and he was found drunk and trying to burn this dismembered body. Um, but his defence was that he killed him by accident and in a panic decided that he probably should dismember him. That would be the best thing to do. And to calm his nerves, he thought he would drink to excess just to see him through. It was kind of a bit like a Victorian Boris Johnson. Uh, perhaps wasn't taking full responsibility for what happened. He was tried and, yeah, hung and gibbeted. Thank you for that. Any other final thoughts? Just one thing. Yes. Pass was a seal maker, and they make those seals to stamp on documents. And the actual seal that was um, on... James Cook's document to seal his death was actually James Pass's seal of approval with his name on because he was a seal maker. I found that out yesterday. I thought it was really, really quite interesting. Yeah. Final. Well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the hour. Absolutely flown by. But so please just thank my guests, Ben, Joe, and Kevin, for their contributions. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Leicester Comedy Festival and Wigson's House for hosting the show today. The next edition of this show will be at the Brighton Fringe on Sunday, 5th of June at 15.30 at the Brighton Toy and Model Museum. I've got a final on this day just to end the show with. Former England fast bowler Fred Truman was born on this day in 1931. Asked what he might call his autobiography, he suggested the definitive volume on the finest bloody fast bowler that ever drew breath. <laughs> I don't know if he said it in that way, but anyway. Here are three quotes from him to end the show with, so number one. Well, that's what cricket's all about. Two batsmen pitting their wits against one another. <laughs> uh, number two. People only call me fiery because it rhymes with Fred. <laughs> Just like typhoon rhymes with Tyson. Uh, number three. Unless something happens that we can't predict, I don't think a lot will happen. <laughs> well, that was It Just So Happens. Thank you very much. Good night.